0: C-I-N-T-H-I-A-H-I-E-T-T dot com. Let the next 60 minutes inspire, motivate, and encourage you to become your own best version. And now, here's Cynthia. Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining me
1: today. And we are going to talk about marriage today. So the title of the show is, What's Marriage Got to Do With It? Now, typically, I speak in general, um regarding relationships. I don't like to focus specifically on any one type of relationship. Um, I have been single the majority of my life. I'm currently married now, but I have been single for quite a while. And so I, I have a special affinity for single people for this reason. I know what it feels like when people speak on relationships and focus primarily on marriage as if it's the only real relationship and the one we should all be aspiring to. So being that as it may, today we are going to talk about marriage because it is a very important relationship, and and our marriages affect many people other than just our spouses. So I like to use modern culture, whether it be music, art, or any other relevant venue, to examine and illuminate, you know, these pertinent topics regarding the human condition. So I like this song, you know, the one that says, what's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? So what's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? So I know that many marriages have broken hearts, and that's a very difficult thing when you are in a marriage and your heart is breaking. If you're not being heard, if you're not feeling understood, if you're not feeling supported, if you're not feeling known by that person or respected. And so we're going to talk today about marriage and what, what is so important about marriage and how we can make that marriage be the relationship that we were all dreaming for when we were dating and when we decided to take that big step and get, marriage, get married. So I've spoken previously on why God wants us in relationship. So we know that God loves marriage. We have this picturesque analogy of Jesus and the church, and we see how Jesus loves the church, his bride, and how he loves her. This idea of marriage gives us an example of how Christ being one with the Father wants to be one with us, his church. So as we are one with each other, whether it be in marriage or living in unity with the rest of the body, we are bringing joy to the Lord. So when we look at this famous passage on marriage and Christ loving the church and um, how marriage is to work, it's in Ephesians, and it's chapter 5, and we're going to read from verses 21 to 33. And this is out of the Message Bible. I think it illuminates this passage very, very nicely. So starting at verse 21, it says, Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands, In ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church. Not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ and he exercises such leaderships, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives. Exactly as Christ did for the church. A loved marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. Now, no one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. Now this is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself in loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. So this is really an important chapter and this set of verses as we are looking at the whole idea and the heart of marriage. And I'm sure you've heard this countless times. But what we often miss is this first verse of this entire passage, and it says, out of our respect for Christ, we are to be courteously reverent to one another. I think the NIV version says we are to submit ourselves to each other. And so what happens is, to gain submission, there must be sacrifice. So when when husbands are saying, you must submit to me, and wives are saying, well, you need a sacrifice for me, What we do understand is that Christ does this first. He sacrifices first, teaches us submission. So, now this does not mean that wives are to wait for sacrifice in order to be cooperative and supportive. Because submission does not mean I am less than, or he's smarter than I, or he's better than I. It means the gift of deference. So I defer often to my husband, not because I'm unintelligent, but I do this out of respect. I want his covering and his protection in my life. I want him to be looking out for me. I want him to feel that fact that I do need him. Not because I'm unable to take care of myself, but because two are better than one. It makes my life easier to have someone care about me and what I need. And so one of the ways we do this is men are sacrificing, women are deferring. And it makes for a wonderful blend when we are doing it appropriately, when we are doing it out of self-respect and respect for the other, and we are doing it courteously, reverently, Out of love to one another. So, what does this sacrifice mean? Well, it means Christ suffered for her. He suffered for his church. He was patient with her. He bore her sin. He died for her. But most importantly, and this is one of the things I talk to with men probably every time I do marriage counseling, I always say to this man, your heart needs to break for your wife. You need to be heartbroken when she is hurting, it needs to bother you when she has pain. Even if the pain doesn't make sense to you, even if you don't understand it, you need to hurt for her. This is one of the ways that women feel safer in the marriage. This is one of the ways that they feel cared for, and it's one of the most difficult things for men to do, because that sometimes can feel like a weakness if they are, if they are giving into that pain. The same way sometimes it can feel like a weakness if we humble ourselves to apologize. But one of the most beautiful things that can happen when we see how Christ loves the church is that he, his heart breaks for her. He hates the pain that she is in. He wants to help that. He comes along. He supports. He comforts. He understands. He sees her pain. He doesn't always fix it, but he sees it and he cares about her pain. So this whole show is going to be a compilation of all this information I've ga- gathered over all the years regarding marriage. And so as we go forward and we talk about how we do this, We're going to talk about solving marital conflicts. We're going to talk about how to avoid marital burnout, some common marital fight triggers that happen, different rules and characteristics of what makes for a happy marriage, and then we're going to talk about these gifts that don't cost a cent to give to each other. So as we look at solving some marital conflicts, what you want to understand is that no matter how well we are communicating with our marriage partners, there's bound to be some areas of disagreement. And so at the heart of every conflict is self. Most people blame their conflicts on circumstances. The unacceptable job, the small house, the fussy children, the poor neighborhood, lack of money, interfering in-laws. And these are, all, these are all very significant issues, and they can create conflict. But the true problem is that the human ego wants unrestrained freedom to do as it pleases, and expecting at the same time the unqualified approval of its mate. In other words... It wants to be the sun around which the mate orbits as a devoted planet. Now, none of us would probably really readily admit to that, but if we look at how we think, how we feel, how we interact many times, that is some of what what naturally unconsciously occurs. So what you want to think about is, when meaningful communications have broken down in a marriage, arguments may erupt over the most trivial things, sometimes becoming so frequent and so heated that the couples begin to feel that they're incompatible. Now, I seriously doubt that there is any such thing as incompatibility in God's sight. It's just two wills that need to be conquered by Christ Jesus. And so suppose these conflicts do exist, however, and the couple is willing to make the spiritual adjustments that need to be made. Then how do we resolve the dissension in our marriages? Well, we need to realize, first of all, that an argument needs not always be a destructive force. It could be the very thing needed to open the channels of communication And expose that festering sore of the soul that has been widening the gap between us. So we must first set some ground rules before we we begin. And so here's I'm going to give you some suggested guidelines for what we would say a, a profitable argument. So first we must establish as our goal a deeper understanding of each other. So if we can accomplish this, we will ultimately thank God for the disagreement. So. The heart of the disagreement is not necessarily the issue. It's trying to understand the other person and where they're coming from. Why is this person talking this way, acting this way, feeling this way, thinking this way? And if my heart is truly to understand, I'm going to have a much more profitable disagreement or argument. And one of the things we want to remember is that God is the one who sees us. He understands us. And so we're wanting to do that godly principle in wanting to understand this this most important person in our life. That would be our mate. So secondly, we must ask God to help us control our emotions. So we often say things under emotional stress that we don't mean. Things that hurt and cut and destroy. And these things many times are not so easy to forget. So the fruit of the Spirit we know is self-control. And we need to let him manifest his calmness and his control even in the face of unjust accusations or serious provocations. Third. We must attack the problem itself, not the personalities or the motives. So as we originally are seeking to understand the other person, why they're doing what they're doing about the particular issue, we also then only want to address or attack the issue, not the person. So it's easy to become overly critical in any argument and to make inaccurate character judgments or to falsely accuse them of evil motives. We, you know. And I say to couples many times, they are not the enemy. You have to look at this other person and say to yourself, this person is not the enemy. And I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're struggling just as much as I am. Fourth, we're going to make sure that we remember that angry attacks against us are sometimes provoked by exacerbating incidents that's totally unrelated to us. So you really want to make sure you practice self-control. Seek to understand that person and find out where is this coming from. Maybe they were attacked by someone at work. Maybe they had a really bad drive home. Maybe they got their feelings really hurt by one of the kids. And so they may be more sensitive or more fragile as they're discussing any, of the, any issues with you. And so finally, we need to also learn when and how to bring an argument to a conclusion. It's important to realize we don't need to talk about everything. There are many things that aren't that important to talk about that we can just ignore, we can just overlook, we can give a pass. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. Join me in the next segment, and we are going to talk more about marital conflicts and how to resolve them. For joining me again. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia, and we are talking about marriage and how to make this particular relationship as wonderful as we all anticipated it was going to be when we got married. So, we were talking about solving marital conflicts and how to do that. And one of the main things that we were talking about is seeking to understand that person, attacking the issue, not the person. We want to think the best about that person, realize they're not the enemy. We're going to also remember that some of these attacks, some of the way they're responding might be completely unrelated to us. We're going to also learn how to bring an argument to a conclusion. And that's kind of where we left off in the last segment. And I was saying that we don't need to talk about everything because sometimes we just get snagged on those little things that really within a week aren't even going to, we're not even going to remember. But if we argue about those little things, then we're going to remember the argument and how bad that night was or how bad that morning was. And so it's really imperative that you really ask yourself, you know, can I get over this myself? Do I really need to talk about this with with this person? Because you have to remember that as emotional beings, we are tenderhearted, even if we appear to to not be. People, you know, everyone gets their feelings hurt. And the more we stress a relationship in talking about everything, the more that 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 causes that relationship to be overused in some ways. We're wanting to protect that person. So we recognize... Little children talk about everything, and they have to resolve it with us. But as adults, we can say, you know, I think I can resolve this on my own. Now, that doesn't mean we're talking about immorality, abuse, um, if, if either of you are breaking rules that you've established for yourselves in your relationship. But just things like maybe they were short with you that morning. Maybe they didn't return a phone call like you thought. Maybe they forgot to pick something up at the grocery store. Maybe they ignored you while you were talking to them. These, sometimes these things are just daily living. So it's important that we recognize what are the issues that we really need to go into and discuss. So we want to concentrate our attention first on our own faults and thinking first of those areas in which we can improve ourselves. Because the temptation when conflicts arise is to sulk over the wrongs committed against us and rehearsing all those old offenses and injustices we suffered through the years. We kind of begin building a case for the next confrontation. Now, if you need to forget that, you need to not do that. You need to turn your mind to your part of the blame, however small it may be, because our own self-will and pride are invariably responsible for part of the conflict. You can't have a fight unless there are two people. So it may have been the little demands we made of our mates for our own convenience, it may have been the indifference we showed toward our mates' needs. So we want to look at, what, you know, what was it that I'm doing in this part that is causing it to also... Go, go in this opposite direction that I'm wanting it to go in. So as we acknowledge our part of the blame and we receive God's gracious forgiveness, we can ask him to give us victory over our sinful self-wills. And we, we need to ask God for that ability to, to have it not be all about me and all about my feelings. And so then the second principle when it comes to resolving conflicts is that as we receive God's forgiveness for ourselves and we look at our part, we also forgive our, our mates' faults completely. So it's hard to forgive our mates if they haven't apologized. But look at it this way. If we have really acknowledged our part of the blame, we will have to admit that the offenses they committed against us may have been, at least in part, a result of the way we treated them. So we have no choice but to forgive, even if they have not admitted they're wrong. Because the gift of forgiveness is for my own personal health as well as the health of the relationship. So if I have asked for forgiveness and they are not admitting to any wrong, at least my part of the relationship is being put in the right position. So eventually, as we, they're going to be apologizing. Because when we start this process of being ready to say I'm sorry, and that becomes a natural part of the relationship, and it isn't this humiliating process, then it also makes it much more healing so that whatever conflict we had, it becomes much smaller than what it felt like when we started. So many times you're going, to say, you're going to say to yourselves, I can't forgive that. That's unforgivable. Well, there are many things that to the mortal human are unforgivable. But to God, all is forgivable. And so when we are working on forgiveness, you have to remember that it doesn't mean that we're going to be able to do it in five minutes. Sometimes I can quickly forgive. Sometimes it may take me a couple of days. Sometimes the offense may be so great, I might have to take a, a year to forgive something, but it's my willingness to walk in forgiveness, my willingness to ask the Lord to change my heart so I can stay open to my my mate. So it's impossible to overestimate the importance of forgiveness. See, when we grant forgiveness, resentment and bitterness disappear and our harsh and intolerant attitudes are then replaced with genuine love and concern for our mates. So now we're ready for the final step. And so that is, we openly and frankly apologize to them for our part of the blame. And sometimes it feels like our apology will be far less than what God wants it to be. It'll come out all wrong and may, may even do more harm than good. That's what we think sometimes. Or I, I was wrong, but you were too. Or I'm sorry I did that, but it wasn't my fault. I'm sorry I said that, but what could, I, I could think after what you did. I'm sorry if I did anything to offend you. I none of these statements really admits to anything. They're not true apologies, and they won't fool anybody either, because your mate feels a real apology, a contrite heart. So this is imperative that only after our hearts have been set right before the Lord can we really offer genuine apology. And so you may have to say to your mate, "You know, I know I need to apologize. I am so upset right now. I can't get my, myself in the right position to do that, so I'm going to have to work on this for an hour or so. So I need to stop talking about this, and I need to figure out what I'm going to come back and apologize for. Because I know I probably have something to apologize for, but right at the moment, I can't even think about it. So that's just part of healthy communication. I just give them what I have so that I can then start the process of the apology. So the next thing that we're going to be talking about is how to prevent marital burnout. Now, what is marital burnout? Well, burnout is a state of exhaustion, and it's caused by long-term emotional demands. Because living with another person requires constant adaptation and compromise. And people see things differently and have different values and needs and expectations. So when you're involved in a relationship, you have to accommodate the other person in your emotional as well as your physical space. What makes this accommodation difficult is the expectation that it's supposed to go on forever. Well, forever can seem like a long time when you live with someone who chews with his mouth open or won't pick up the dirty socks. But what we want to look at is... How are we pacing ourselves in our marriage? Because it is going to be forever. We are wanting to be married forever. It doesn't mean that when we go to heaven, we're all going to stay married. But we're looking at this relationship as an eternal relationship. So what would be some symptoms of some physical exhaustion, some emotional exhaustion, and mental exhaustion? And I'm going to talk about those in, uh, in more in depth in the next segment that we're doing. But the first one, what you think about physical exhaustion... This is what you're going to feel like. Monday, after a relaxing weekend, you wake up tired, you drag your feet all day. When you come home at night, finally, you're so annoyed with your mate, you can't even sleep. Your stomach churns. All you recall is every unkind word, inconsiderate act. Each quote-unquote crime becomes magnified as you toss and turn. When you finally fall asleep, you're haunted by nightmares. And the next day, you're even more exhausted. And so there's this, this physical exhaustion, and a lot of it has to do with the way that I'm thinking. And the way that I'm thinking can create internal stress and exhaustion. And what I'm focusing on, when God talks about think on these things, those things that are pure, righteous, of good repute, holy. So when we're thinking about our mate, I want to really be careful what I think about. So join me again in the next segment. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. joining me again. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia, and we are talking about what is marriage all about and what does marriage have to do with it. And one of the things that we were talking about in the last segment was marital burnout and how to avoid that, how to prevent that. And so we were talking about this first, this first part of burnout, and that's the physical exhaustion. And a lot of it has to do with how I'm thinking and what I'm thinking about Because that creates internal stress. So if I'm thinking on all the things that I don't like about my mate and everything that they're doing that drives me crazy, that's going to cause them internal stress. And as I go through my work day and I deal with all of that stress and the stress of driving and the stress of phone calls and and if I have to pick up things on the way home and then I get home and I'm exhausted and now they're already bugging me because I thought about all the things during the day that bug me about them. I finally get into bed at night. I'm exhausted. I can't even sleep. I'm so exhausted. I wake up the next day. It starts all over. So we really want to look at physical health because one of the things that's imperative if I'm going to do a relationship well is that I am physically healthy and that I'm managing stress because relationships require energy, a lot of energy. The more intimacy you desire, the more energy it creates in a positive, but the more energy it always uh, also requires. So I'm going to want to really make sure that it... I really want my marriage to work. I can't be overextending myself in all kinds of other areas because I'm going to be too exhausted to do the relationship. The second one is emotional exhaustion. Resentful and disillusioned, you know, you don't want to work through any more problems and nothing seems to matter anymore. So you've given up on the idea of changing your spouse. You don't have the energy or inclination to change yourself. So you feel trapped and convinced there's no hope for the two of you. That's what emotional exhaustion looks like. We just want to quit. We just don't, you know, what's the point anymore? So it's imperative in this point. This is when you would be wanting to call a therapist, a pastor. You might want to be going on a marriage retreat so that you can get some external support instead of just trying to do it with each other when you're already emotionally exhausted. It helps when you see a therapist because when clients come to see me, I have a lot of energy for their problems. I care a lot about them. I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of resources. So, It can be energizing simply because I have hope and I have resources and I have energy for the problems. The next one we have is mental exhaustion. So this is where your self-esteem is plummeted. You're developed negative attitudes about every facet of your relationship. You're painfully aware of all the little or not so little things your mate does that makes you want to jump out of your skin. And you have this terrible feeling of failure that the most important relationship of your life is failing. Even though it wasn't your fault, and even though you didn't did everything in your power to make it succeed, so this is when mentally we just say, "I'm not even. I can't even think about this anymore. I don't even know if there's a way. I'm completely despondent, and I I I feel flat as a pancake." That's what happens when we get that mental exhaustion. And so, when we're treating marital burnout, although it can be a very painful experience, it also can be conquered. As with as with most difficult emotional experiences, if it's properly confronted. Burnout can be an important trigger for growth because couples who burn out and who learn to cope effectively often emerge with a better, fuller relationship. This is why it's imperative that in this particular situation with marital burnout, if any of what I described to you, it's imp- imperative that you find a therapist or a pastor that can work with you because at the point that you're needing some outside help to to bring some energy into so, some support, And to really believe and to say to you, I have seen many couples go through this. They've come out of it. They feel better than they've ever done. They have a renewed marriage. They're excited. They're in love again. And so it is very, very possible to do that. And once you start turning a couple of the things around and you start to get a little bit of hope, it's amazing how resilient the human heart is and how much it can love and how much it can come back. So one of the things that that a basic thing that we say to couples when they're facing some of this is that we just say to them. What attracted you to each other when you first met? What did you see in this person? What drew you to this person? And so many times you find that the qualities that drew you to that person are also the ones that are, that are frustrating you the most. And that's not, that's not unusual. And there are ways to turn that around so that you are seeing that person from the right side and not the back side. Because many times when that quality that we loved so much is now driving us crazy, it's because we're not seeing the person as we originally saw them. So it's kind of like seeing the backside and not the front side of that person. So we want to get it turned around so that you see that person again, the one that you fell in love with. So we're also going to talk a little bit about what we would say are marital fight triggers. Like what are things that, that are going to absolutely trigger an argument? And these are just kind of automatic responses. they many times are unconscious or they are just something that we have practiced habitually. And so now we do it without thinking. And so, one of these, first, is that it's this idea that I think we can read each other's minds. Now, the more that you get to know someone, the more you pick up on all those different nonverbal cues, and you do know that person well. But what happens is you start to put that person in a box. You start to think that they're not an original, unique person anymore, that you have this script in your head that, oh, I know exactly what they think. I know that every time they do that, if I say this, they do this. And so it's important that as we're looking at these triggers, that we look at some solutions as well. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia, and join me in the next segment, and we will finish with Marital Fight Triggers. Thank you for joining me again. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. This is our last segment, and we're going to be finishing up this talk of what's marriage got to do with it. And so we were talking in the last segment about marital triggers, and these are these automatic responses that create arguments immediately, or you're already in an argument it just hasn't come out of your mouth yet, but in your head, you're already in one. So this first one is thinking that we can read each other's minds. So it's like thinking that you know your spouse, what what he's thinking or she's thinking or feeling, and that really can get people into trouble, because for example, assume let's let's for an example that your partner's mad at you, often becomes like this self-fulfilling prophecy because you then get mad at them and act in a way that will make them mad at you, and so it becomes this this um, negative feedback loop. So the first the simple solution for this is you just simply ask your spouse what's really on their mind instead of reading their mind scripting it for them, making all kinds of assumptions, you might just want to say, you know, can you just let me know what you're really thinking or what's going on? I'm really interested. I do want to know and I want to understand because I don't want to make assumptions. The second one is feeling that he or she is not listening. So the truth is it's very easy for one spouse to become distracted by the TV hobby or even just their own thoughts when the other one is talking. So this can truly trigger a real conflict. If all of a sudden you think, you know, they're not even listening to me. So instead of jumping to that conclusion, instead of getting defensive, you might just want to say, honey, did you get distracted or are you following me? Are you with me? And we can do that in a way that is truly encouraging them to get back into the conversation. Before we make an assumption that they don't care about me, they're, they're you know, self-absorbed, they never listen to me, they're, you know, they're not interested in anything. And I make all those judgments. I really want to give the person the benefit of the doubt And realize, you know, we all can get distracted. We all sometimes can start to zone out when we're tired. So it's imperative that we do see the best in the person. So what's another one? Not putting an argument to a rest. It's very difficult sometimes when you have a really heated argument to not keep nitpicking at what happened in the argument. When the argument is resolved, it's imperative that you just let it go. And don't keep unwrapping it. Once it's wrapped up, don't unwrap it. And you say to yourself, Can I these, these other miscellaneous ideas or feelings that got stirred up while we were in the argument, am I able to just resolve those by quieting myself with the Lord, working on forgiveness of myself and my mate? Do I have to keep talking about all of it? And so I really caution couples about having very long discussions, like hours in length. It's good if you take breaks, because a lot of times if you take a break and you come back, there's a lot of things that just kind of went away. And the main theme is then the one that you want to work on. So another one is blowing off steam. Now we may not be able or want to yell at our kids or our boss when we're angry, but we will yell at our spouses sometimes. And so our spouse has this, you know, kind of becomes a catch-all sometimes. So we're, we're this really, you know, on top of ourselves, kind of self-controlled person with everybody else, but with our spouse somehow we get this feeling that we can just let down and just be an uncensored, unfiltered person. And this is very unwise to do. And it's also very unfair. So it's very important that if I am wanting to vent, that I say to my spouse, that's what I'm doing and I don't make it about them. That if I just am hating my day or frustrated with life or I'm not happy with how the kids are acting, or I'm frustrated with money or a bill came in that I didn't expect, I'm having all these stress reactions that I simply say to my spouse, I am so upset, I am so mad, I'm so disappointed, but not at you. I know this isn't about you. I know this is just how I'm feeling. And I set those internal boundaries so that I make sure that I'm delineating between whether or not I'm really angry with my spouse or if I'm just angry at life. Because if I am angry with my spouse, then it's important that I address what I'm angry about and I use the when you I feel. So when you don't take out the garbage and the dog eats it up and spreads it all over the kitchen I feel really frustrated. That's different than just going off on them with the laundry list of everything in your day that, that made you mad and then talking about the garbage. So the last one, this is secretly expecting each other to act a certain way. So when these expectations aren't met, couples get upset. And so we have to be very careful that we don't have unconscious, subconscious, repressed expectations that we really practice the gift of acceptance, that we just accept our mate for who they are and let God work on it. You know that famous prayer by Martin Luther, pray and let God worry, that my spouse is just another mistake-making human that's struggling through life just as I am, not doing it perfectly, but redeemed. And so maybe not the whole entire man, the whole entire woman is redeemed, but the redemption is a process. That's our working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we're doing it with someone. We're not doing it against someone, and we're not doing it for someone. I am working out my salvation with fear and trembling. My husband is working out his. So I don't work on his, and he doesn't work on mine. It's very, very important that we have appropriate expectations and that we are soft and kind and gentle to our spouse and that we see them as a person that, that God is working on that is precious and valuable to him. So let's talk a little bit about what what makes a marriage happy. What makes a happy marriage? Well, there's a couple of these, and they've done some, some studies, and this was done by the American Psychological Association. And they examined many, many couples varying from 25 to 44 years, that they'd been married 25 to 44 years. Now, that's a long time. And so this is what they found in these couples that had these long, enduring marriages and said that they were happy. Well, the first one, they had frequent expressions of love and affection very important that you look at one another that you kiss because whenever I do marriage couple marriage counseling, one of the first things I ask them is do you, do you kiss? Because when people stop kissing, that is one of the most affectionate and nurturing things humans can do. When we stop doing that, that shows us that we're kind of moving apart. Our closeness is moving farther, farther and farther apart. So it's important that we hug, we look at each other, With, And not just glance, but we really look at one another and we kiss. Mutual trust and respect. This does not mean that I'm trusting my husband implicitly as if he's God. It means that I trust who he is. Even if he's not acting it every day, I trust who I know him to be. And I trust God implicitly for, for caring for me. And for making sure that my life is working. I don't trust him implicitly. And I respect him. So that comes back toward me as well my husband trusts me and respects me now there are many things that we do with one another to make sure that i'm encouraging him trusting me and i'm encouraging him to respect me but these are imperative in a marriage because that creates security creates bonding and attachment and it creates this wonderful respite this this safe place that you have with one person shared love for their children throughout their lifetime this doesn't mean that every couple has to have children but they do have to share their life and love what's in their life. So if that's a hobby they do together, if that's their faith, if it's pets, if it's whatever things that they are are participating in, that they have a shared love for those things. They also have the ability to give and take. So it doesn't work well when you're in a marriage and the person is always giving and can't receive. It doesn't work well at all when one person doesn't know how to give or won't give and they're always receiving. So there needs to be this mutuality of, of giving and taking. Sensitivity to each other's needs and wishes. This is imperative when you are wanting a highly intimate relationship that you take their little things seriously. So if, if let, let's say something like, um, it really bugs them if you don't put the, you know the proverbial cap on the toothpaste. Well, then just do it. Because what it does, it's these little pain relievers that we do for one another. So when I'm deferring in that way, to my spouse and I'm knowing that these things bug him or he's knowing these things bug her. That she doesn't, you know, I'm going to be sensitive to those things. I'm going to be sensitive about maybe topics that I talk about language that I use, the way that I dress. um, When I watch television, how loud I turn the stereo on. These, These things are one of the ways that I'm sensitive to their needs and, and making sure if, if maybe I need less sleep and my spouse needs more sleep, that, that isn't, that's a need that each spouse needs, and that has to be respected, and, and we need to be sensitive to it. We also have the equality and an absence of power struggles. So when we have equality in a marriage, it doesn't mean that it's the same. It doesn't mean that we have the same responsibilities. It doesn't mean that we have the same decision-making process. But it means that there is an equality within the marriage and that there isn't anyone trying to be overpowering or domineering. There needs to be some playfulness and having fun together. It's imperative for couples to enjoy one another. That is one of the main reasons God gives a woman to a man and a man to a woman is to have a companion and a partner to enjoy life with. And we need to have a good sense of humor. So it's very important that we practice having a sense of humor, especially with one another, and that we can laugh at ourselves because that is some of the most fun is when you are known by someone for all, by someone with all your little foibles and idiosyncrasies. And you can laugh at yourself, and they can laugh with you. And it doesn't mean that we are doing it in a demeaning or derisive manner, of course, but that we are just fond of one another. And that's part of having that good sense of humor and that way of being able to play with one another. Now, lastly, we're going to talk about what are eight gifts that I can give to this relationship that don't cost a cent. And these are very, very helpful in creating a happy marriage and creating that enduring long, long standing relationship with this person, that these are disciplines I want to be practicing daily. I want to incorporate this into my marriage, into my relationship and into my life. So the first one is the gift of listening. And this is very important because people need to be heard. This is one of the most important things for human beings is to be seen, to be heard, to be touched, to have companionship. And so the gift of listening is I really listen. No interrupting, no dreaming, no planning your response. I just relax and I listen and I seek to understand what is going on with that person and what they're telling me and why they're telling it to me instead of everything I'm thinking and feeling about what they're telling me. So I'm really wanting to listen so that I can support whatever is going on with them, whether it's a request, whether it's um, a lament, whether it's a, a success and so it's imperative that I give the gift of listening. The next one is the gift of affection. So I'd be generous with appropriate hugs and kisses, pats on the back, hand, holding hands. And these demonstrate love for this person. And so when we're thinking about public affection, this is a very important thing that couples can do. Now, obviously, I'm saying this, that we're doing this appropriately, so, But what it does is it, is it causes the rest of the world to see how I feel about this person. And it's a public statement. I like this person. I want to be with this person. I'm proud of this person, which is, one, which is a great gift you can give your spouse. And so affection also, we know from studies, is that affection is one of the things that increases serotonin in our brain. Serotonin is the calming neurotransmitter. That's the one that tells us that everything's okay. We can handle the world. Because affection is one of the things that brings resiliency. And the gift of a written note, this seems, I simply say, I love you, or thanks for your help. How about the gift of a compliment? Because many times we think people know things, and we find out they didn't know. And so it's nice when we say, you know, you look really great today, or you did a great job, or I like how you handled yourself with that person, or I just enjoyed watching you. And I give a compliment, or you're such a hard worker, or I love how you um, go about your day, how you handle the kids, how you take care of the pets, how you take care of the car. These types of things are very helpful when we give that gift. How about the gift of a favor? So every day I go out of my way to do something kind for this person. Just little things here and there. Because these are the pain relievers that help us with with the drudgery sometimes of our day. Or how hard the world is sometimes. And then the gift of solitude. See, there are times when we want nothing better than to be left alone. And you need to be sensitive to those times and give the gift of solitude to others. Not taking it personally not getting overly sensitive about it, but truly giving them that gift of solitude. We know that that's part of spiritual discipline. That's how we seek God is through silence and solitude. We need to be offering our spouses solitude that helps them regenerate. And the last one, and this is very important, the gift of a cheerful disposition. The easiest way to feel good is to make others feel good. And I'm not talking about it in a codependent way. I'm talking about the, the more cheerful I am, I brighten other people's lives. And so we pull all of ourselves up together many times. So it's very imperative that we practice these gifts. Thank you for joining me today. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. Please join me next week
0: and have a great week. We hope this past hour has been encouraging, motivating, and inspiring to you. We'd like to remind listeners that this show isn't a replacement for professional counseling or therapy. The messages and teachings shared during the show are given as a way to reach listeners with ideas and insights about how to become your own best version. Cynthia is available as a keynote or guest speaker for corporate and spiritual events. To contact Cynthia, go to CynthiaHyatt.com. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear a replay anytime at KPXQ1360.com. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for Conversations with Cynthia on 1360 KPXQ.